Target 10's intersections. Today, we're very excited to welcome Eric Marcus, a journalist, author, and communications expert whose many books include Making Gay History, in which Eric uses oral history to tell the story of the first half century of the gay civil rights movement. Making Gay History was recently turned into a podcast, also called Making Gay History, which just kicked off its second season with an episode featuring the original voices and stories of two heroes of the early LGBTQ movement, Marsha P. Johnson and Randy Wicker. You can find Making Gay History on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Eric, welcome to Intersections. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be here. So I would love to start off by asking you to just share some general background on the oral histories that you currently have, as well as what drove you to conduct your research into gay icons. Um, I wish I could take credit for it, uh, but I can't. Uh, I was working um, at CBS News and got a call in the days when people made phone calls uh, from an editor at Harper and Row, the company now called Harper Collins, and he asked if I'd be interested in doing a book on the LGBT civil rights movement. In those days, he said, the gay civil rights movement. Um, he wanted, wanted me to do an oral history, oral history, and I said, I'm not an academic. Uh, I don't even have a history degree. My undergraduate degree is in urban studies, so I'm an expert on architecture, architectural history and urban planning. Um, and he said, I, I don't want an academic doing this book. I want this to be fresh. And he liked the interviews that I did for my first book, The Male Couple's Guide. Um, and I used dialogue in that book. And so that's why he asked me to do it. And that meant once, 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 they, they just, once I said yes and we had, a, had an agreement, that meant I had to go out and do interviews. Um, so that's how that, that came about. I would never have presumed to do an oral history of the, of the gay civil rights movement on my own. It's just it's such an enormous project. Um, and also, I wasn't that interested in history. My experience with history was, was not great um, in school, and I always found history to be very dry. Uh, but once I started talking to people, it was extraordinary hearing their stories. That's very cool. And I guess maybe kind of a related question is, having used oral history in your previous works, what was it um, about oral histories? Was it just kind of being able to make use of the verbatims from the couples, or did you have a particular passion for it that kind of drove that to be the way in which you um, conducted your research? Um, for the first book, um, I just like, I like asking questions, and people, for whatever reason, find it easy to talk to me. You know, this was from an early age. I remember saying to my mother once when I was 14 years old, and one of her friends had just spilled her entire life story to me in the kitchen. And I said to my mother, why do people talk to me? You know, I'm only 14 years old, and I heard about a divorce and, and our relationships, and it was just it was a little overwhelming for that age. Um, I love hearing people's stories. I love asking questions. My nephew uh, jokes that I'm the uncle who, who always has 100 questions whenever we get together. And I, I'm curious. Um, I love people's stories. And a great way to tell history is through stories. Um, rather than stepping back and writing a narrative based on my interpretation, with my history book, I got to talk to the people who were there. I was stunned to discover that there, that there was a history before, before Stonewall. I thought it began in 69. And it turns out it began during World War II. Um, and some of my stories go all the way back to 1920. So um, I didn't realize that there would be people out there who were still alive who could tell those stories. And no one had asked them, or very few people had ever asked them what their experiences were. Um, and I find that print oral history is interesting. Doing audio oral history is far more powerful. Yeah. 
That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think two of the things that I really enjoy about the podcast in particular um, are that, first of all, so many of the voices are no longer with us to be able to get to hear the stories with their own tone, their own cadence, the laughter, you know, sometimes the tears to get to, you know, I think it makes it that much more provocative um, and compelling to have the opportunity to really hear these voices from history, which especially in the case of LGBTQ history is a pretty rare occurrence. I mean, I certainly had never heard the voices of any of the people. Um, and, you know, even just the way, even if you've read stories about or by these people, you know, you read them in your own voice or the way you might imagine they, they sound. And so to get that opportunity, I think, is very cool. And then the other part of it is, you know, I think for someone like myself growing up on social media and even just kind of the current media landscape, everything is so it's like these short blips, you know, like the video can't be more than a minute. Um, everything needs to be like a stinger that's 10 seconds. And so to be able to actually have the chance and they're not hugely long podcasts by any means, but to get a little bit more of the fabric of the story. Um, I think is a really nice benefit to it. Yeah, our podcasts are, our episodes generally run 15 to 20 minutes. I, I do an introduction and a conclusion, and our pieces in the middle are usually 12 to 15 minutes. Um, I remember listening to Sylvia Rivera for the first time since I'd interviewed her in 1989, and I'd forgotten what her voice sounded like. Um, and it's so distinctive. Uh, and if you listen to the first 10 episodes of last season, each person sounds so different. They grew up in a different part of the country, different era. Um, they speak in ways that people don't speak any longer. Uh, our, for this season, uh, with Marsha B. Johnson, who is uh, featured in the first episode, Marsha's voice is also so distinctive in the way she speaks. Um, and you can read lots about Marsha B. Johnson, but when you hear her speak and hear her talk about her life a bit, because uh, it was a little hard to extract... Um, a lot from her. Um, it's fascinating. Um, so, as you said, reading you read these stories, and it's two-dimensional. But when you hear their voices, and you also hear on the tape how I interacted with people, um, you can hear, I think sometimes you can hear my exasperation, but I hope not. And sometimes you can hear how much fun we, we have. Uh, later in the season, we have an episode with Gina Leary, who was uh, the one-time president of what was called NGTF, the National Gay Task Force, now the now National Lesbian Gay Task Force. I'm not even sure what they call themselves anymore. Um, Jean and I had so much fun talking, and I think that comes through too, the, the, the intimacy of a conversation. Um, and it's so alive, even though most of these people are dead. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a an added bonus, we all know how, how colorful members of the community can be, so that just makes it that much more entertaining for, for some of these folks. Um, we have an episode coming up with Al Call, um, who took over the Management Society in 1953, and, and he was so colorful, actually his language is so foul, we had to have a, uh, a little disclaimer um, saying that uh, if you're a social studies high school teacher, you can't play this in your class. <laughs> um, I mean, he was, his language was rough, and he was, he, well, you have to listen to the episode. <laughs> he really struggled with what to include and what to leave out. It's a good preview. Um, well, so the next question, and, you know, this is a sort of wide-ranging one, but just kind of wondering, having had the opportunity to re-listen to all of these, you know, I'm sure many a time as you're preparing for and producing the episodes, was there, you know, one or more things that you could tell that 
you know, the activists in particular and these pioneers shared in common, some sort of trait, um, anything that sort of united them or, you know, or otherwise? I often said in the early, when I did the interviews at the beginning, that it must have taken courage to do X, Y, Z. And what people said invariably was, no, it had nothing to do with courage. I was angry. Um, so anger drove people, and the search for love drove people. So uh, in the early days in particular, or even a little later, when people went to a bar for the first time, or went to their first Daughters of Belitis meeting, um, often it was in search of companionship. Uh, in search of love, in search of sex. Uh, it's what young people are looking for. And LGBT young people are looking for just the same things as everybody else. So those two things really drove people. Um, Frank Kameny, who was uh, who we featured last season, who was the founder of the Madison Society of Washington, D.C. in 1961, and a, an important figure in the movement, and an, uh, a real visionary. He came up with the, uh, the slogan, Gay is Good which was adopted in 1968 by the movement. Um, he talked about being radicalized, that something would happen. He was fired from his job, for example, or, or someone else I interviewed was beaten up by a, police, by a policeman just because she was on a street at night going to a gay bar and she was dressed mannishly, as she put it. Um, and people wind up being radicalized because something terrible happened to them. Or legislation that they expected to get passed wasn't passed. Um, so outrage often motivated people as well. And a wish a wish for the next generation not to have to experience what they did. That it should be different, it should be better. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And it, it just reminds me of, you know, I think anger in particular and outrage is, you know, was and still is the stimulus to some of the more recent even non-LGBTQ movements, whether Black Lives Matter or the Women's March, and even um, reminds me of some sentiments I, I heard from and about the Women's March, that it was almost too party atmosphere-like, the sense of anger and outrage. Again, I mean, there were so many people there in so many different pockets, but I think it just goes to show that I, there, there is a need for that sort of a thing when it's, you know, when it's appropriate. I think anger is an excellent motivator. Um, what I was impressed by throughout in studying the movement and interviewing people is that people also had fun, and it's important to have fun. I was at the Women's March in D.C., and anger got us there, and but the sense of humor was so important for, uh, a sense of irony uh, was so important for expressing how we felt and the range of feelings that people had. Um, anger has its place, and there are things you can be outraged about during, during the AIDS crisis. Certainly anger motivated just about all of us, um, but there was also humor involved in some of the things that were done. Uh, each has its place. Anger well-channeled is uh, an ext extremely useful emotion. If it's just diffuse anger, it doesn't help anyone. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Um, well, maybe thinking, thinking through all the interviews you've done, um, wondering if there's one or a few that kind of really stand out the most, whether the most powerful, unexpected, even funny. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of stories, but if there's a couple that you want to offer, I would love to hear them. I think in the old days, I might not have said how I felt because people were still alive and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Um, Last season's episodes, all ten, I just loved everybody we, we uh, featured. Um, Edith Ide, in particular, who went by the name Lisa Ben, who wrote the first newsletter for lesbians in 1947, and sang uh, parodies of popular songs using her own lyrics in gay clubs. 
she was just lovely and dear and um, um, and an important uh, visionary. Um, I love hearing her sing. Um, um, another person, Wendell Sayers, who was just a heartbreak because he was so lonely and had tried so hard to be engaged and be a part of the tiny activist community in Denver in the 1950s, but was black and an attorney. So there was this, they, they, people were prejudiced. White, white, white gay people um, were just as prejudiced as everybody else and were not very accepting of him, but also scared of him because he was an attorney. And they, they, given what, what times were like for gay people, they were afraid of the law, and he worked for the attorney general's office. So he was another favorite. This season is a little more complicated. We have more complicated stories, people who I didn't necessarily um, fall in love with, um, but they're, they all have an important story to tell. Um, I, I, um, if, I, if you forced me, I could tell you some people I didn't like very much, but <laughs> that wouldn't be very nice of me. Um, but people will be able to tell as they listen to the episodes when I uh, really engaged and, and enjoyed who I was with, and sometimes I was just there as a reporter asking questions. Yep, that definitely makes sense. Um, and maybe just with you know related to kind of how one reacts to these to these stories and, and personalities, wondering with the launch of the podcast, um, in terms of maybe feedback you've gotten, um, things you've heard from from friends or, or otherwise online, if you've noticed, well, just sort of maybe generally what the reaction has been, and then more specifically, if you've noticed any kind of different reactions between perhaps an older generation of LGBTQs who have greater familiarity with the figures involved versus younger queer people in their 20s, 30s, um, or, or, or other kinds of groups? What I have found in general is that almost no one has familiarity with people who, whose stories we're telling in this podcast, even if, they're, they're, even if they were key figures. Um, none of us has that education. Uh, we didn't learn in school. It wasn't written about in newspapers years ago. It's not something that people are familiar with. We did a presentation to uh, the Gay Democratic Club of Queens in Queens, New York, um, where I grew up. And um, most of the audience was older, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they only recognized one name, Sylvia Rivera. Uh, two. They also recognized Jean Manford, who was one of the founders of what became P-Flag. Jean was for Queens. Um, but otherwise, nobody knows these people, um, even though they did very important things. Our audience, I've heard from a lot of people around the world who've listened to the podcast, from a 21-year-old dancer with the New Zealand Ballet um, uh, who was shocked about this history. He had no idea. He just thought the way things are now is how things always were. Um, he says, like, he looked at a bicycle thinking, well, there were always wheels, um, and has loved learning about his history. And I like to say, and I believe this, that we can't know where we're going unless we know where we've been. Um, I was so inspired by these people. I had such a sense of pride based on what they did in the years that were so much more difficult than, than these times. And they lay out a roadmap for us now of what we might do in these difficult times. Um, they're inspiring. We have every reason to get to know them. Uh, often people apologize to me for not knowing. And I would say, there's nothing to apologize for. We were not taught. Um, but we have the opportunity now to learn from these people's experiences. And I was fortunate enough to meet them and interview them three decades ago. Yeah, I mean, you really, it's such a 
valid points and you, you can't put a finer point, I think, on the fact that, that we know so little and are taught so little. And even when there are LGBTQ strands in, in high school or even college courses, they're still such a small part of the overall curriculum. I know I, I never had any of that. And every now and then I'll fall into a, a Wikipedia hole as we, as we do sometimes. And I can barely retain the amount that I'll learn just from spending 15, 20 minutes. I mean, I, I may have mentioned to you last time we spoke that I recently came across the fact that there were um, trans protests in San Francisco that, um, about lunch counter opportunities that predated Stonewall. And that took me on a whole journey about San Francisco queer politics and protests that I had never even heard about. Um, and, and I doubt many of my friends did either. So um, all the more important to be able to hear the stories from these people in their own words. Um, <clears throat> so next I was wondering, um, this I think I, I may have added this question, so hopefully it's not too much of a curveball, but it feels like, from my perspective at least, there's been um, more a, a much greater focus uh, within the LGBTQ rights movement today on kind of diversity and inclusion and intersectionality. And even just from some basic history, I know that there was often friction and tension between even just men and women, let alone race or, or other types of groups. And I'm wondering, you know, is that just a question of of the times that we live in? Or is it a question of just different, even something like the Black Lives Matter group having been one of the founders is, is a lesbian, things like that just being more prominent nowadays? That would have never happened that uh, decades ago that the leader of a movement, of the Black Lives Movement, uh, could have been a lesbian, that one of the leaders. Um, as a couple of the people I interviewed said, um, who were uh, uh, who were black, it was one or the other. You could be in the black civil rights movement, or you could be in the gay rights movement. You couldn't be in both. It was very difficult to be. Um, the times have changed so dramatically. Um, the women's movement came up alongside, or we came up alongside in the gay rights movement. With the women's movement, many people who were involved in the early gay rights movement got their experiences, got, got experience in the black civil rights movement. Um, these are white people who supported the black civil rights movement, took what they learned and brought it to the gay civil rights movement. Um, I always like to say gay people are like everybody else, so we bring all of our prejudices and issues with us. So in the early days of the movement, which, which is the 1950s, and we think about what the relationships were between men and women in the 1950s, gay men treated women the way straight men treated women. Um, so by the time you get to the 70s, there were huge, there were tensions early on, but there was a real split as women found their, found their way in the movement and outside the movement. Um, and then there, was, there were issues within the women's movement between the straight women and the lesbians. So this is, um, has always been thus, um, but what's happening now is there is an intersectionality that there, that there wasn't and really couldn't have been. It was a lot that had to be learned on all sides to make this possible. Yeah, and I think, you know, one can hope that this, you know, despite the negatives of the current sociopolitical climate, um, I think if there's anything it does encourage, it's the bringing together of groups um, for a common cause that may not have worked worked so well together in the past. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We, we, you know, we have a common, we have some common issues to, to deal with now, to fight. Um, what I hope that people will do, and I find this isn't always the case, is that we have patience with each other. That um, you can't expect, especially younger people, of older people, um, you can't expect that we will always know what you know and have learned. Um, there's, there's especially big issues around language, and I sometimes find that 
among younger activists, uh, there is the expectation that we will simply know by absorbing it through the ether. When I was young, um, I know there was a lot of impatience that we had when straight people didn't understand us. And I came to realize that part of our job was to educate other people. Whether we liked it or not, that was our job. And for people who are uh, dealing with gender issues, um, gender nonconformity, uh, which is a new issue within the LGBT civil rights movement, certainly new for me um, in recent years, um, there's a lot of explaining that has to go on, a lot of learning. Um, and I like to think that we are, those of us who are older are open to learning, and I hope that those who are younger will be patient with us as we learn and um, join in the efforts to make this a, the world a better place for everybody. Speaking of, <clears throat> of kind of community or sense of community, um, something that actually just kind of came to my attention yesterday that was getting a lot of share around, and I don't, I don't know if you may have seen, was it was kind of a half op-ed, half research piece, like a long-form story in the Huffington Post about gay loneliness. Um, and I, as some listeners may know, you've, you've written, you know, aside from your work on gay history, um, on, you know, gay coupledom and, and loneliness and some of those sort of interrelated issues. And um, it was discussing some, you know, the research that even though we've made such progress as a community, looking at gay men in particular, there are still, you know, very high rates of, of depression and suicide and, and all of these unfortunate things. Um, and without getting into the, the meat of the article, because it's long, one of the things that it talks about, and this is not just the author's opinion, but based on various studies he found, um, you know, recent studies that came in kind of even even young kids today who are so accepted and this one has a lesbian mom and that one grew up in a progressive east coast family despite some of these things um they of course and we experience some pretty heavy duty emotional baggage as we're growing up it's hard to to shed sometimes um and then you enter a community and you're kind of um not to speak for everyone but you know many are kind of expecting this this sort of wonderful accepting group and it turns out that it's it can often not be that way at all um and you know i think we all know some of the stereotypes about gay men and of course you know that's not always true for everyone but there's you know i think we've all probably also experienced some stigmatizing whether it's over bodies or, or other related issues race even um within the community and so i guess just curious to know i know that's kind of a lot but um, whether you've seen the article or not, I think you can probably understand the premise. Just curious to know if you have a take on that, kind of why it's still like that today. I think it's just basic human nature. Um, and men can be pr pretty brutal with women um, in terms of subjectivity and, and uh, categorizing people. And uh, I think men do it with men. I think women do it less so, but I can't speak for women since I'm not one. Um, one thing I do hear from young people uh, most often is how do I meet someone? Um, whether it's a 13-year-old boy or an 11-year-old girl, they, they, I hope these are kids who, are, who identify as LGBT. They're just looking for others like themselves. And we are a minority. We're a very small minority. And that means that there aren't that many of us in any given community. In big cities, there are more of us. But for, especially for people who grow up in smaller cities and towns, you might be the only one or a handful. And you might not know how to find that person. Uh, so I think loneliness. I think loneliness is a problem within our culture in general. Um, there is an expectation, or a hope, or a fantasy that when we come out, 
we'll get that toaster as a gift. Uh, I don't remember on, on the Ellen show years ago when our character came out, she joked about getting a toaster for coming out. Um, so we don't get a toaster, and we may walk into a bar and find that we don't fit, um, or we may join a club where we feel, feel we don't fit. When I was young, I found the best places to meet other gay people were outside of bars where there wasn't pressure. Um, I joined a running club. Um, there are bowling groups. There are hiking groups. Those are the best places to find other people where where you're not being judged necessarily in such an obvious way for how you look. Um, I think loneliness is a pervasive problem in general. I think it's worse for us. Yeah, yeah that actually... I, a lot of those points came up in the piece, and I think even just the the fact that everything is so digital heavy today, even back in the day, even in a bar, if you were to walk up to someone and it didn't necessarily work out, you could wind up as friends, perhaps, whereas now you send a message on Grindr, you just don't get a response or you get blocked, and I mean, not only does that result in not having a friend, but the damage to your psyche is, you know, <laughs> speaking from personal experience, not that great. I can't even begin to imagine... Um, I didn't grow up in that world. Um, I'm 58, and um, I just, I can't even begin to, it would be so hurtful. And maybe I'm just tenderfooted, but if I got swiped the wrong way or blocked, I, I just had that experience recently. I just learned how to use uh, MailChimp for a podcast sent out uh, to a list of 275, and five people unsubscribed. I was wounded. <laughs> I thought, no, how could, and one of them, one of them was, actually a couple of them were people like, no, and I thought, Oh, that hurts. But what if it was? What if? What if I put my picture up and they were judging me for as a potential boyfriend? They're very painful. Um, and the social nice. There, there are certain social niceties that go along with being at a bar that you might not find. I imagine you don't find online. Yeah, that is an understatement. <laughs> um, I'll post a link to that article in the in the podcast description. <clears throat> well, I think we're we're close to the the end, but maybe just to end on a slightly lighter note. Um, Wondering just since there is kind of a dearth of, of LGBTQ media um, and for what's out there, I think there's probably fairly limited knowledge, even amongst those in the community. Just wondering if there is any anything really books, media, uh, movies that that you might recommend to listeners that might not be familiar with it. I have one thing to recommend. Um, LGBT. Uh, this is an Instagram account. LGBT underscore history. These are two guys, a couple. Uh, in their 30s, both lawyers, um, a year ago created an account uh, where they post archival photos and then do a short write-up. They've gone from zero to nearly 90,000 followers. And it is such a wonderful place to learn things. And it's not overwhelming. It's not a book. Um, it's not a, a, an hour-long podcast. We've had hours is not an hour long, I might have. Um, but I also suggest listening to my podcast. Um, but I learn something every day from them. And they post several times a day. So that is my number one recommendation. Cool. Well, I appreciate the easy recommendation. I'm sure everyone else does well, as well. Well, this has been really interesting and, and fun. Um, so thank you again, Eric Marcus, so much. Um, again, Eric Marcus is a journalist and author um, whose uh, podcast, Making Gay History, just started its second season. And you can find it on iTunes. And at makinggayhistory.com, where you can also see lots of photos and get background information on each of the people we feature. There you go. All right. Well, thanks again, and um, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, Matt.